kids hearing in language development. When should we be concerned? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Children's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Robert Pfeiffer, who is Director of Audiology and Speech Pathology at the Mailman Center for Child Development in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Miami School of Medicine. Today we're going to be talking about kids and hearing and language development and what we should look for as primary care docs. Dr. Pfeiffer, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your being with us. My pleasure. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own personal background and what got you interested and passionate about this particular area of science and medicine. I literally grew up in communication disorders, having been born with a cleft palate and multiple surgeries and 12 years of speech therapy. Plus, my parents were hearing aid dispensers going back to 1955. And so I grew up around people with communication disorders, including my own. And I also grew up around the deaf and deaf community. So coming into the college scene, it just felt natural for me to get a bachelor's in speech-language pathology, then my real interest was audiology, and I switched to that area on the graduate level. Let's think about this as primary care docs. I understand that uh, the development of hearing and language development is along quite a long timeline. Any particular points along that line that we as physicians should be concerned either by what we see or what we hear or what we uh, get in terms of history from parents, especially moms? Many times the front door into looking at hearing from the physician's perspective is going to be the speech and language development. Back in the 70s, there was a term developed when personal computers became available called GIGO, meaning garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) Well, if you flip the coin for a glass half full, good input, good output. And language and hearing are related in exactly the same way. You must have good hearing input in order to have good speech output. And that mnemonic holds ever so true for a child who is developing from roughly six months of age to about three years. At six months of age, they really start to hone in and become truly chatterboxes in many different ways. Also around six months of age is when the incidence of otitis media really begins to climb. And the research has shown that there is a relationship between otitis media and speech development whereby speech development will be delayed for the child who has long-term or chronic otitis. But the good news is is that for speech per se, once you clear up the otitis, then speech plays catch up pretty fast. Our literature is still conflicted with regard to the relationship of otitis media and language per se, because I can show you a stack of reprints from the floor about three feet high saying there is a relationship, Mm -hmm. and I can show you another stack of reprints from the floor about three feet high saying there is no relationship. And so it's been really difficult to pin down for the relationship between otitis and language as opposed to otitis and speech. Where do you come down in the argument? I see enough of a relationship for children who have auditory processing disorders and reading problems who have an extensive history of otitis that, yeah, there can be a relationship, but my question for me is, is it cause and effect or is it a result of a third element Uh that's resulting in both incidents to happen? Do you see in your experience, either by history or with your patients, that Certain individuals or populations are more commonly affected with otitis media. Do you see any correlations that we should be aware of? Well, when we're born, the immune system is like a clean slate, 
And so we're going to catch whatever there is out there to catch, and many times cold symptoms and otitis comes along with the territory. If it comes and goes, if it's there and it's transitory, then I tend not to worry about that too much. The kids I really start to worry about are the ones with chronic otitis that never really clears up. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned about that for two reasons. Number one, the language is also like a clean slate, too, in that to fill in that slate, that child has to hear well in order to receive the language model and learn to imitate and develop their own language models based upon what they receive. And so good hearing is very important for that. The practical effects of otitis media with regard to hearing are very similar to if you and I had a head cold and our ears were really stuffy. Okay. We can still hear, but everything sounds really muffled and much less volume compared to what's normal. Well, that's what the child's going through. And that to us is a dirty signal that really distorts what they're trying to listen to and learn from. And so if that's going to be there for a long period of time, that cannot be good for filling in that clean slate with appropriate language models. Mm. Also, it decreases the hearing just enough to where they can miss some really vital things that's going on around them that can also contribute to language and learning. So, again, for the kids for whom otitis is transitory, comes with territory with a head cold and then disappears, I don't worry about those kids. But there are a few where the adenoids are involved and they have all kinds of allergies and inflammations. Those are the kids that I really become more concerned about. And if the otitis does not go away over the course of about six months or so, then it could be time for more aggressive treatment. And both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery have developed criteria for when to refer for more aggressive treatment for a child with otitis media. Got it. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special segment on children's health on ReachMD, XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today to discuss hearing development is Director of Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology at the University of Miami School of Medicine, Dr. Robert Pfeiffer. Bob, we were talking about criteria for referral. Let's talk a little bit about when hearing loss is discovered. What options are available to physicians and to specialists nowadays? Well, hearing loss comes in two forms. One is a conductive hearing loss involving the middle ear, and that can be transitory and usually restorable either through medical treatment or through surgical intervention. The other type is sensory neural, and that involves primarily, most often, the cochlea, and that's one that can be really insidious in terms of how it affects the child. It's an invisible disorder. And so for the primary physician's rule of thumb, anytime you have a child 18 months, 24 months or older, who's showing signs of speech delay, that's the child that we need to examine. And the reason why is because many individuals, physicians included, I've discovered, think of hearing as either all or none. Either your hearing's normal or you're deaf when in fact there are many variations or gradations between those two extremes in terms of levels of hearing and variations across the frequency spectrum as to which frequencies may be involved. The child may have a high frequency hearing loss, which is very common, in which case you sit with the child face-to-face and they hear and respond just fine. That will fool you every time. But you take that child and drop that child in background noise 
then the hearing loss becomes truly apparent because, especially in English, there are some critical sounds that occur in the high-frequency range, sounds that correspond to the letters S, T, C, H, S, H, K, P, F, and H, and the voiceless TH. These are all very high in frequency, very weak in energy, and they do not transmit well over a distance, and they are easily covered up by background noise. They comprise more than one-third of what we speak in English, and so if the child misses that, the child can hear the voice but simply cannot understand what's being said. It sounds like there is sometimes these types of hearing losses may go unnoticed by the primary care doc, I mean, even by the parents. Exactly. And the child's not doing well in school, may show signs of memory problems, may show signs of attention problems. And all of these things could be due to hearing loss, which is why it's necessary to rule out hearing loss or rule it in. And if you rule it out, it's one less thing to worry about, and you can press on and not worry about it for at least for a while. So you would suggest then if there have been, say, learning problems, behavioral, academic issues, that's one of the things that needs to be ruled out early on in the game. Exactly. How do we go about doing that? What's some of the diagnostics one might use? Depends on the age of the child. If it's a very young child, one that cannot respond voluntarily by raising the hands, we have two objective techniques that we can use. One is a class of auditory evoke potentials called the auditory brainstem response. This works on the principle that when the ear hears a click or a very short duration sound, there's a lot of organized activity along the hearing nerve and synchronous synaptic activity in the brainstem. Through EEG electrodes affixed to the head, we can record that activity and determine if there is a hearing problem and to what magnitude. The second technique is called otoacoustic emissions. Within the cochlea, the outer hair cell system is a biological amplifier. These cells actively move when they are stimulated by sound. Movement creates energy. And by definition, energy has to go somewhere, it just doesn't disappear. Turns out the path of least resistance is back out the way that sound came in. And so we can present distinct sounds to the cochlea, wait a few milliseconds after each presentation, and then record evidence of that return energy. If we see a good, robust response, that means that the health of the inner ear is normal, and that translates into normal hearing. Older children, we can start using behavioral techniques to take advantage of their curiosity. We can present sounds in a sound field if they will not tolerate earphones. And as they look to localize that sound, that tells us what's going on actually with both ears because you have to have two-ear input to tell where sound's coming from at that presentation level. Older children, we start using play techniques, a response, condition response paradigm, where they can put a peg in a pegboard or drop a block in a bucket when they hear something. And then older children, typically around four, mature four or five-year-old and above, we can teach them to raise their hand whenever they hear the beeps. That's pretty high-tech stuff. Let me ask you this. Is there any value from your point of view, in some of the screenings that are done either as newborn or as pediatric well baby visits, uh, the hearing screenings that docs typically do, is there value in that? Absolutely. The universal newborn hearing screening has become law in a number of states. I think the last count was something like 43. And it has done two things. One is to allow us to identify hearing loss very early so that we can put hearing aids on these children by two or three months of age. And then we also began the language intervention process to minimize the effects that hearing loss would have otherwise on language. It has also brought hearing loss to the forefront in many physicians' minds to where if the child is not speaking, 
perhaps the reason could be that the child is not hearing well. And it has made a lot of physicians think about this with much greater frequency than what they did before universal newborn hearing screening really came about. One of the things to keep in mind is that there are causes of hearing loss that can result in delayed onset. And those are really what we need the physician's help to look out for, and that's where monitoring their academic progress and also their speech and language development really becomes important. Right. My thanks to Dr. Robert Pfeiffer for being our guest. We've been talking about kids and hearing and language development. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening.